the topic this evening, which is, of course, for us to gain a deeper appreciation of Shabbos, uh, I, I was wondering how we pick this topic. You know, we always try to find something that's a little exotic, something that's a little, you know, <coughs> out of the box, you know. Sometimes they pose it as a question, which my wife always finds fascinating. Shabbos and Shemitah, is there a connection? <laughs> Do you really think the guy's going to get up and go, nope? <laughs> Thanks for coming, everybody. <laughs> so obviously there's, uh, you know, so you just, you, call, you, know, you start off with the top, Chesed, Shabbos, you know, Kashver, something, something so fundamental, yeah? So fundamental that you wonder, gee, why would we start with a question like that? So the I pointed out for something that's so obvious, I don't know how I, of course, missed it, and that is that this coming Shabbos is the Shabbos Project International, and all over the world, community after community is doing special projects for Shabbos. There are going to be special challah bakings. There's going to be special, you know, speakers. There's going to be, I'm, I'm going to uh, be in Flatbush with, uh, with Rabbi Friend, uh, although if you look at the poster, Rabbi Friend will be in Flatbush, and I'll be there too, and, uh, <laughs> and a bunch of other rabbis. And, um, uh, you know, it's uh, all around the world. <coughs> this is coming. Last year, they, they brought me out to uh, Vail, Colorado for, uh, for Shabbos Olami. This, this year, I'm in Flatbush. Next week, uh, and next year, I have no idea where I'm going to be. Probably I'm going to be next door in my house, you know, in somebody's uh, living room. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it is an unbelievable concept. And it's one of the reasons that... We all know this. The Masil Sharman, as Hakdama says, <coughs> the, the more obvious something is, the more we take it for granted, and, and the less we even notice it, even though it may be more important. Right? The more important something is, and the more obvious it is, the less we even uh, uh, realize it and pay any attention to it. Right? And uh, what I used to teach, I would give an example, you know. Um, I would say to my seminary students, what's more important? Your favorite outfit, but I mean the one that you really look good in, you really like, it's very special to you, or your mother, right? I.e., the house is on fire. You can either save your mom or your favorite outfit. <laughs> and I've posed this question for almost 20 years, and almost all the time they say their mother, and I think that's nice, you know? You know, they understand their mother is more important than their favorite outfit. I said, so how come when your ma mother ruins your favorite outfit in the wash, you scream at her? <coughs> you know she's more important. The answer is because the things that are most important are the things that we tend to forget. Right? You ask any parent who's more important, the person who's calling on the phone or your own children. For sure, your, your own children. Right? So how can people go like, hello, hi, how are you? Hold on. Hold it down! If I have to come down there, you're going to get it! Hi, how are you? You know, they're not as important to us, but that's the way we are. We 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 tend to put, you know, the things that are most important we take for granted and we forget it. I don't know who first said it. I heard it many years ago, uh, but uh, somebody made the observation. It's too bad that Shabbos doesn't come once a year. If we had one Shabbos a year, think how hush of it would be and how special it would be and how much we would enjoy it. But well, the truth of the matter is that Shabbos comes every single week. To my mind, Shabbos Bereshis is such a special Shabbos. Because you've just had, you know, you go from Rosh Hashanah into Shabbos Shuvah, into Yom Kippur. And then this year you have another Shabbos in between, you know, Yom Kippur and Sukkah. So then you have, you know, uh, Shabbos Cholomo, you know, and, and it's just, Shabbos is sort of shunted off to the side. <coughs> and finally you have a Shabbos. Just Shabbos. Imagine if we had that once a year. It would be such a focus to us. But it doesn't. It comes every week. And therefore, anything that happens all the time is always a challenge. Yeah? Yeah? The things that I teach you today should be on your heart. What's today? Every day it should be like you just got it. It should be fresh. It should be exciting. You know, Yisro, uh, when he wants to leave, Moshe says, come with us and you'll be for us a Nayim. Says Rashi, we'll see everything through your eyes. Right? What does that mean? <clears throat> the first time I had the schus to 
go into Yerushalayim was January 1969, a year and a half after the Six-Day War, and according to my revised biography, 20 years before I was born. So I was thinking, if Superman can have a reboot, so can I. Yeah? But uh, I, was, uh, I was a student in the Hebrew Academy of Nassau County, and my father took, uh, took the three youngest boys to Israel uh, on a trip, and it was not a religious tour. And we were going up the Baba Wad, which today they call the Jerusalem Highway. Yeah, this the tortured, twisting road, you know, um, which had only recently been reopened because it had been closed, obviously, for the, you know, those 19 years in between 48 and 67. You know, and you, the bus is slowly making its way up, and we, the bus stops. And the tour guide, who was not a religious fellow, says... You do not ride into Yerushalayim. You walk. Everyone off the bus. And all of us Jews got off the bus and we walked into Yerushalayim till we passed, if you remember, they used to have those plantings, you know, those flowers that spelled out Bruchim HaBa'im Yerushalayim. And what an unbelievable experience. So now, I'm living in Israel uh, over 28 years. And every time I go to Yerushalayim, I try to remember that experience. But when you meet someone who's come to Israel for the first time, <coughs> and you get to see it again through their eyes. What an exciting thing. Harry Olawick, uh, when he used to teach in Asia Torah, so uh, he said once in a, in a public uh, lecture, uh, otherwise I wouldn't have quoted him. If he just told it to me privately, I, I would put it on my Facebook. But, uh, <laughs> but he, uh, he, he was a public share. And, and he said, you know, he would take the taxi to the hotel and then, you know, go up the stairs to Aisha Torah to go and teach. He says, and one day he was late. And he, and he, you know, gets out of the cab and he starts running up the stairs and he stops and he says, you know, I just passed by the hotel and I didn't even turn to look. Now, I, I'm, I'm so used to seeing the hotel Maravi that it's become, it's become ordinary to me. It's become lax. If you're in my age group, you know, at this point, even Yom Kippur is rote. We know what to expect. We know where it's going to come. We know, you know, all the tunes, all the steps. When you're, when you're younger, <clears throat> Yom Kippur is an adventure. It comes once a year, you know, to try to remember, you know, what's going to happen, what's going to come. There's still something. There's nothing. There's no, the magic is not there anymore. And the challenge of something that comes all the time is <laughs> can you find that feeling, can you find that magic? <clears throat> this is a big problem we know with the Pesach Seder. You know, they speak about a lawyer who has 10 years experience and a lawyer who has one year experience 10 times, right? I say the same thing about Pesach Seder. There are some people who have had 10 Pesach Storm and some people who had one Pesach Seder 10 times. And there's no innovation. There's no thinking about it. There's never an idea of what does this Pesach Seder, what is the message that I want to give across at my Pesach Seder. <clears throat> and it's it. Because there's so much preparation that goes into it. So much preparation goes into Pesach. Right? You know, all the cooking and the cleaning and the shopping and the serving. Or it, it could be even worse if you're going away. You know what I mean? Because then there's the packing and the schlepping and setting things up, which to me is much worse. I have eight daughters. You know, I'll take a moment just to reflect on that. When we have a simcha, it's a tragedy because there is no one country that has enough clothing for my children. You know, that's not really fair. There's not one continent that has enough clothing. We're searching, they're searching the world to see if they can find something that's ridiculously expensive that I won't like because that's another priority. So, uh, <clears throat> You know, so you have to pack everybody up for Yantav, you slept there, etc., and all the work that goes into it. And, and it all comes down to the Seder. And, and we have an opportunity to give across a message. And have we thought what we want to say? Have we thought about that? Well, we're already heading into the Hanukkah mode, right? You can't tell it as much in this country, but you can certainly tell it in Israel because they're already selling the Sufganiyot. You know what I mean? Once the Sufganiyot come out, Right, shortly after Sukkot, then you know it's almost Hanukkah, and you give yourself uh, 
two months to really develop serious heart disease, you know, from that stuff, you know. <coughs> it's real tough, you know. Sufkaniyota, if you haven't been to Israel for Hanukkah and you haven't had a Sufkaniya, what can I tell you? Angel's Bakery saves all those old challah rolls that they can't sell, and they soak them in oil long enough that if you put in a wick, you could recreate the Hanukkah miracle. And they put some powdered sugar on it, <clears throat> the only time that there was, you could actually get Tzavgani out without powdered sugar is when they had the, uh, that scare, you know, uh, the uh, anthrax scare. <laughs> Somebody put anthrax, you know, on top of Tzavgani out, but in my opinion, the anthrax would never have survived. All of the oil would have been destroyed in a second. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, and you can always tell when someone ate one because, like, the powdered sugar is all over there, you know. And, and you try to rub it off and it just gets a sheen, you know, it doesn't, you can tell, you, you walk around with a glaze, you know what I mean? So, uh, so it's almost Hanukkah, you know, and it's the same thing. <clears throat> what's, what's the insight into Hanukkah? How do we make Hanukkah meaningful for ourselves? Where is the, where's the understanding that, that Hanukkah is going to be something different? I, I was <clears throat> asked to speak last week in Harnof to a group of widows who asked this question, and uh, they said, how do you find new insights into Hanukkah? And I shared whatever insights, you know, that I thought would be fresh for this coming year. And then they painfully said to me, but how are you supposed to enjoy that by yourself? I said, you should never be by yourself. So one woman said, well, my kids can't come every night. <clears throat> I said, then invite over another woman who's in your situation and share it together. And one of the women said, and the next day we could go to my house. And I thought, how painful that we'll be lighting our, our Hanukkiyot, you know, having our misibot in our own homes and our own families, and they're, oh, you know, almanus, grushas, people who are going to be sitting by themselves and have no place to go, you know. So we have to invite them in and make sure that we give them a Hanukkah to remember, and a Pesach to remember, and a Purim to remember, and whether it's our own children or somebody else, or for ourselves, we have to look at it in a new light. How much more challenging when it comes to Shabbos, right? Every single week, and the same thing. <clears throat> There's a lot of preparation goes into it, and the cooking and the cleaning and all the last-minute stuff that goes into it. And, and there is, uh, I don't know if you know the Gemara in Shabbos tells the story of Hillel, where, um, where Hillel is... Um, uh, I just spoke for Chazak in, in Queens, uh, in Great Neck uh, on Sunday night. I told the story, so I won't go into the whole thing. But you know the story with Hillel, where these two people make a bet. You know, one of them says, I can get Hillel angry. So he waits, you know, Arab Shabbos, till he goes into the bath, and he starts counting, where's Hillel, where's Hillel? And he keeps doing this over and over again. <coughs> so one of the Mepharshim point out, every aspect of that story is important, including the fact that it was on Arab Shabbos. Because there is a special Yetzirah to get angry on Arab Shabbos. This time of year, I think he has more to work with. But you know that, you know, with short time to go to candle lighting, you hear people pounding on the door. Are you getting out of the shower? Are you going to go to the shower? I don't know, this isn't ready. I'm gonna... The Mishnah says, Adam Loma Besach Beisa There are three things a person is supposed to say in his house before sundown. And says the Tiferes Yisrael, in your house, they shouldn't hear you outside. You understand? <laughs> because the, uh, the screaming and everything goes on. But there's all the preparation. And then you come into Shabbos. You come into Shabbos. There was a girl who was a student in Stern College. <clears throat> and she said to me, I don't know, I don't find Shabbos to be a particularly meaningful and uplifting experience. I said, tell me about your Shabbos. She says, well, I'm on a high floor. It's really hard for me to get down. So I don't really go to shul. So I daven. I eat in my dorm room, you know, uh, a quick suda. And then I go to sleep. And I sleep the whole night. I sleep the whole day. You know, I get up and daven. I have a little something to eat, go back to sleep, you know. <clears throat> and I don't know why. I don't find it spiritually meaningful. <clears throat> because the way most people keep Shabbos, it's indistinguishable from being in a coma. You know what I mean? You know? It's just how much sleep can a person possibly pack into one day? You know? And it's sad. There are people who, there were certain tzaddikim, wouldn't sleep a whole Shabbos. Because I don't want to miss the experience. I mean, Lahavdil, Jackie Mason, you know, he says, if you go down to Florida and get a hotel room, 
you know, so it's $200. But if you get a view of the sea, it's $2,000. So I sleep with one eye open. And I say, I want to get my money's worth. The person says, I don't want to miss Shabbos. I don't want to miss Shabbos. It's, it's, it's this unbelievable opportunity. But of course people don't understand what that means. I had a girl um, in a seminary <clears throat> come over to my house when I moved to Israel. I was there for a few years. And, uh, and she says to me, towards the end of Shabbos, she says, I don't get it. Your kids love Shabbos. And I said, yeah. Kids are supposed to hate Shabbos. Everyone knows that. Shabbos is a day of don'ts. I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't go here. And it's just something to get through. I used to be the Long Island Director of NCSY um, years ago. Um, and um, I would do Shabbaton in different communities. And sometimes I would do a Shabbaton for kids who came with very, very little background. And if the Shabbos ran over an hour later, you know, especially this time of year, you know, the, you have Shalshudis, uh, you know, and you have Shabbos ebbs away. If you've been to an NCSY Shabbaton, you know, everyone ebbs. <laughs> and, uh, and then you have Havdallah, and they sing Havdallah, and you know, if you went an hour over, nobody's, nobody's too upset, you know. If I was in a, a, a community with day school kids, uh, ten minutes before Shabbos was ending, they kept checking their watches. Well, what's happening? Shabbos is supposed to be over, you know. Why would we prolong this? Why would we want it to go on? Right, the Hasidim, we know, they go on much longer, you know. <coughs> Amshunov, forget about it, they make Havdalah, you know, on Wednesday, you know what I mean? They just keep going, you know. By the way, I just heard the Amshunov Rebbe announced that everyone should vote for Netanyahu in the Israeli election coming up. Anyway, Amshunov is always behind the time, you see, so they, they're still on the last election, you know. I'll walk you through it, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> I look at this as kind of a public service, so don't worry about it. Anyway, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but, but, but regular good, you know, red-blooded Jews, you know, uh, if Shabbos goes out at 312, uh, whatever it is, 512, we want it over at 512. That's it. You know, the idea of it going on for another minute is something that people find excruciating, you know. So there's something that we're missing. And um, I want to try, if I can, to to try to find this, because I think it is a fact. It's very much like davening itself. When I used to run Junior NCSY, I used to give out a question here. There are a number of questions about the whole Shabbaton. There was one question, what did you think was the most important part of the program? And they wrote the tefillah. <clears throat> there was a little question later on, what part of the program did you like the least? The tefillah. <laughs> so people daven, and they don't like it. You know? <clears throat> so I... Uh, I, I was once by one of my brother's house, and uh, I don't remember who was there. There was, there was another guest there. And, um, and I said, you know, I'm really surprised <clears throat> about people who come to shul, and they just talk the whole time. They talk the whole time. I said, I don't understand why they come to shul. I mean, I'm talking about I watch people talk through, not really through chakras because they weren't there, but they, they talk through the Kriya Satira, you know, they talk through the Haftarah, they talk through all of Musaf, talk through Kedusha, they talk through the whole thing. I said, why come? I think instead of having davening, we should offer an option downstairs where we just put out a table with refreshments and anyone wants to come downstairs and talk, you know, etc., you know, and let everybody upstairs who wants to daven, daven. Anyway, there was this uncomfortable silence at the table. <laughs> you know, every now and then I stumble onto something which I don't know, you know, I just don't realize it, you know. Um, and uh, for the first, uh, I'd say, 20 years of my marriage, I worked with a limp because my wife was always kicking me under the table, you know. <laughs> we had these two girls from the Vey Rishleim over, and there was this one blonde, blue-eyed uh, girl from Texas, you know. And I said, uh, I said, where's, where's your family from originally? You know, so we've been in Texas since 1848. I said, I didn't know there were Jews in Texas in 1848. And everyone at the table is going. <laughs> I said, were there shuls down there at the time? And I'm like, you know, and it took a while. And I was like, because I'm really surprised. Oof. <laughs> and I was like, what? And then, and I was like, oh, oh, I get it. Never mind. <laughs> 
was a little uncomfortable. Sense. Anyway, I felt that same kind of uncomfortable sense at the table. And I look around and say, well, what's the problem? So the guy says, that, that's me you're talking about. Everyone knows me. Yeah? I come in by around the laning and I talk the whole davening. You know? So I said, so why don't you go downstairs? It's a good idea. He says, I can. When I get there, the Kiddush Club is already in, uh, in full mode. You know what I mean? I could go downstairs and I could eat and I could drink. I could do that. I said, but? He says, I want to come to davening. I said, but you don't daven. He says, I know, but I want to know that it's happening. Even though I don't do it. I want to know that there's davening. I want to know that there's Kriya Satayra. I don't participate. But I, I want to be a part of it. Do you ever go to a simcha where you watch people dancing and then there are the people standing off to the side watching the dancing? I'm not thinking about the sitting, people sitting at the table on their, on their phones. I'm thinking about they, they want to be part of the davening. They want to be part of the dancing. They just can't get into the circle. That's what, that's what it is with a lot of people with Shabbos. I know there must be something to this. You know? I don't remember what it was called. My kids know it. There are these different Israeli you know, comedy groups. You know? and, um, and they have these like, little scenes. Little scenes over and over again. So you see these two guys looking at a chessboard. About two minutes. And each one's like trying to consider. And finally goes... Forget it, I don't know how to play chess. Neither do I. <laughs> they walk away, you know. But they're both staring at the board, you know what I mean? We know Shabbos. I'm thinking about people who are Shomer Shabbos. I'm not thinking about people who are not Shomer Shabbos. People who want to get something from it and enjoy it. So I want to try to give, if I can this evening, a different perspective into Shabbos. <clears throat> and let's start at the beginning, right? So um, my son is doing Mishnah Shabbos now. And uh, he just had a test on the Lama test Malachas, right? The 39 Malachas that we all know. And, um, and uh, we, we don't always appreciate, you know, uh, the significance of this information, you know. Um, there was a girl at my house who was learning at Neve Yerushalayim. And uh, she had been working for... Um, I'm going to forget his name. I always do. Uh, the guy, the talk show on CNN talks like this. Uh, Larry King. She did the booking for Larry King. And her, her hero, her idol was Madonna. Yeah? And, um, <clears throat> and Madonna, she, he, she wanted to book Madonna on Larry King. Now, there is not a worse shidduch in the entire world you could make than putting Madonna on Larry King. It's just, it doesn't go. But she was going to do this. And it was her job to arrange booking guests. So she calls up Madonna's person. She says, listen, I'll discuss it with her, but I don't think Madonna's going to go into Larry King. You know, I'll call you. She says, okay, well, you can't reach me tonight. You, know, you can't reach me till tomorrow night. She says, what do you mean? I've got your home phone. I've got your cell phone. You know? She says, no, no, I, I don't answer the phone um, on the Sabbath. She says, What? She says, yeah, I'm, I'm an Orthodox Jew and I don't answer the phone on the Sabbath. This was, as she filled in, she came to Neve Yerushalayim, she became religious, then she went back, you know. And now she went back to her old job and she was trying to fit it all in, you know. So she says, let me ask you a question. Do you use toilet paper on Shabbos? So she says, no, I tear it beforehand. She goes... I can't believe it. I heard that once, but I didn't believe it was true. <laughs> he goes, let me see what I can do for you. So she calls her back, say, night. He says, I convinced Madonna to do it. She really didn't want to, but I convinced her to do it. Okay, so once they tell her that Madonna's going to come on the show, so she's just a kid, they push her off to the side, and all the important people come in, and this woman says, we're only dealing with this girl, nobody else. <clears throat> So she became the front person, and she's making all the arrangements, etc. And finally, Madonna comes in. And, uh, and he says, this is, whatever her name was, Karen, you know. And she's like, hi, you know. He says, you know what? Karen doesn't tear toilet paper on Shabbos. <laughs> Madonna goes, why not? So she says, because um, it's one of the 39 forbidden categories. She says, like what? Um, plowing, 
um, harvesting. She's sitting, she's sitting, she's getting a quiz on the Lama Des Malachas from Madonna, you know what I mean? <laughs> she's trying to remember them, you know? <clears throat> and afterwards, Madonna says to her, that's so cool. And she says, well, if Madonna thinks it's cool, I'm going back to Nevei. And she quit her job and came back and came to my house for Shabbos. So you never know where you're going to find the inspiration, you know? It's an amazing thing, you know, to, to, to get the inspiration to keep going, you know? Um, this story, I did not meet the guy, but I met a girl who went out with him, who was in Nevei Yerushalayim, and she was at my house for Shabbos, and she... You know, I, I, I don't know how I told the story. She says, it's true, I went out with him. Yeah? <clears throat> this guy uh, came to Eshet Torah, and he became, uh, he became, you know, Shomer Shabbos, and he went back home to his home in Los Angeles, and uh, he was keeping Shabbos by himself in his room. Uh, his name was David something. It was Dave something. I don't remember what it was. Anyway, so he, every Friday night he'd sit in his room and the whole family would watch TV together. That was the only family time they had. They all watched TV together and he was sitting in his room feeling sorry for himself. And this happened Friday night after Friday night. He had no from people around where he lived, you know, and, and he couldn't take it anymore. And he finally says to God, he says, God, I need a sign that I'm doing the right thing and I should keep keeping Shabbos. You have till midnight. And if I don't get a sign, then I'm done. And he's waiting, it's 11.30, it's 11.45, it's 11.50, it's 11.55, he says, it's 11.55, God, you got five minutes, yeah? <laughs> and it came out to midnight. It wasn't really midnight, I think God still had about another 15 seconds, but, you know, that's enough. It was going to happen, it was going to happen. And he walks outside, where unbeknownst to him, his family is watching David Letterman. And the guest was Robin Williams. And he says to Robin Williams... Um, so I heard you were performing in Israel. He says, yes, I did. He says, did you learn any, you know, Hebrew while you were there? He says, sure. And he turns to the camera. So he's looking right at the TV as this guy walks into the room and goes, Shabbat Shalom, Dave. And he goes, ah! <laughs> Runs back into it. You never know where the inspiration's going to come from. You know what I mean? And, Anyway, so my son is getting the same fahir that this girl did from Madonna. What are the Lama test malachas, right? And we all know the 39 malachas, what they all are, and where do we get them from? So we all know this. We get it from the Mishkan, right? We analyze the Mishkan and what went into making it. What did we need to make the dyes? What did we need to weave the fabrics? What did we need for the wood? What did we need for the hides? You know, what did we need for every aspect of it? And we take that apart and we analyze it to figure out what was a malacha that was used in the making of the Mishkan. Isn't that a little backwards? The Mishkan was something that existed for the Jewish people for about 40 years in the desert. It was a traveling it was a, a temporary dwelling. <clears throat> Once they came to Shiloh, they packed it away. You know, um, after Shiloh was destroyed, they brought it out. They used it a little bit till they came to Yerushalayim. And then when Shlomo and Melech built the base of Mikdash, everything that went into the Mishkan was hidden in the tunnels underneath the, uh, the Harabayas. And uh, that was the end of it. It existed for a very small time period. <clears throat> Shabbos comes every single week. Yeah, 50 times a year or more for uh, thir over 3,300 years. Is that a little backwards that I have to have the Mishkan discussed in so much detail? Truma, Tetzave, half of Kisisa, Vyakel, Pekude, all of Vayikra. Oh, so many dinim applying to the Mishkan. That's why people do Shnai Mikra Echad Targum. They know. They stop right after Bashalach. They pick up again in Bamidbar. You know, in between, there's <laughs> just this, 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 you know, empty field of, uh, you know, of, of Mishkan stuff, you know. And um, I believe that this is one of those psychological problems that afflict only Orthodox Jews. I, I've seen this, you know, that I was going to write my doctoral thesis on it. Um, uh, there are certain psychological conditions that you see afflict Jews in particular, Orthodox Jews. Um, uh, the first one is phobia, 
which is the fear of becoming flaciks. You know? <laughs> and you can see people who suffer from terrible flaciophobia because you're making something like, you want to taste this? No. What if I, what if I want a cup of coffee or, or ice cream? I, I can't. I can't. <laughs> it's like a six-hour commitment, you know? Then you wonder why there are so many Jewish singles today. You know what I mean? Like, you know, the six-hour commitment gets people absolutely crazy. Someone told me that German Jews suffer less from this than... Uh, <laughs> that's true, but no one is flunchophobia. The second one is for sure benchophobia. You know? Um, my father, Ovashalom, would never sit down to eat without a piece of bread. Yeah? And God help you if there was no bread on the table. You know? You eat with bread. Bread is a meal. My father-in-law would always sit down and have a piece of bread. That was a given. Yeah? Rabbi Pelik, who is the Rav of Shared Tzedek, uh, he told me, uh, he asked um, Rabbi Yoshev once, what bracha do you make on a schnitzel? So uh, he says, what's a schnitzel? So he goes to the representative and he says, you never gave him a schnitzel? He says, tell him it's what he had for lunch. Now, the question was, because in the good old days in Israel, there was more breading than meat in the schnitzel. So he didn't, is it a mazainis or a shahako, yeah? So uh, he went back, he says, it's what the rub had for lunch. He goes, gee, I don't know, uh, you always wash and eat it at a suda. I mean, nobody would just pick up a schnitzel and eat it. <laughs> I remember when Shavuos came out on Shabbos, and Thursday, we were making for Shabbos lunch, schnitzels, you know. And schnitzels are only good when they first come out of the frying pan. You know what I mean? After that, they start to lose their appeal uh, on a regular basis, you know. It goes down, you know. So uh, when they first come out, and they're hot and they're nice. So my daughter um, popped one in her mouth. And I said, what are you doing? We eat milkshakes tonight. And she sat through the whole suda as we had lasagna and blimses and eggplant parmesan and ice cream and she had a scrambled egg my, my son made for her. And that's when she developed her phobia, by the way. Just... <laughs> but phobia. today when a person sits down, they say, do you want to wash? No, I don't want to wash. I put out rice cakes, put out crackers, Mazona's rolls, Mazona's bread. I will never bench again. <laughs> Because you see how long it takes the average person to bench, especially if you have teenagers. Can I go? You didn't bench. Oh, you want me to do it again? Can I go now? People, uh, there's just something about benching. I, I believe it's because from the time that a kid is the age of three, we make him memorize that really, really annoying tune that someone decided to put the benching to. That's why when it came to know that we just gave up. No, so the average kid, you know, they, the only thing you can do better than Thomas Bench is say, let's sing the benching. You know, he'll slit his wrists and sit in a warm bath before he's going to do that, you know. It's just such burnout that a person gets from benching, you know. And the third one is for sure Mishkanophobia, you know. They, they keep coming out with all these books and all these pictures and you try to explain it to people. You know, and you're like, well, you know, there were these sticks that went along the edge of the crushim, a third of the way down, a third of the way up. They were like little sockets that they slipped into and then they put these rings on the top and you just watch everybody's eyes glaze over you know what I mean this was made out of gold but they were, and they're like make it stop make it stop you know it's like nobody wants to hear about the fish guy I don't know there's something about it that's just so you know overwhelming about it so I got a great idea take out all the Mishkan from the Torah and put it into a brisa called the Mishkan you know and anybody who wants can go and learn it you know, and all that space that you saved, write down the Lama Tazmalachas. Put in Hilcha Shabbos. It comes every single week. Isn't it kind of strange that you tell me about the Mishkan and from there I have to learn out the laws of Shabbos? Tell me the laws of Shabbos and let me learn out the Mishkan from that. Oh, you see from this that they must have used, uh, you know, uh, big, uh, big uh, beams, right? Krashim. Because then they'd fall, they would crush you, right? So they're going to crush you, you know what I mean? <laughs> Put those over there, you know? And uh, whatever it is, you know, what, why do I need to spend this much time doing it? Someone asked me today, just today, they said, um, God rested on Shabbos? So you see that God is, he isn't infinite, you know, he needed to rest. I said, he needed to rest? 
He said 10 things over seven days. You think he was really wiped out from that? <laughs> With 10 expressions, he created the world. That's all he did, is he said, you know, God said, let there be light, and there was light. That was it. He didn't even say that part, and there was light. He just said, let there be light. Phew. <laughs> I understand if he worked for a union. You know what I'm saying? But... <laughs> But come on, the guy said, let there be light, and that was it, now he needs a day off, you know what I mean, like, you know, he did that ten times, you know, it doesn't make any sense. What does it mean God rested? God doesn't work that he has to rest. It means God rested from creating the world. He was creating the world, and then he stopped creating the world. That's all he did. He stopped from creating the world. That's what Shabbos was. <clears throat> Which means that when we have to rest on Shabbos, we have to rest from creating the world. Now that's easy, because I can go months without making as much as an asteroid. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't create anything. I don't make planets, I don't make stars, I don't, I don't create you know, laws of gravity. I don't, I don't do anything. Yeah? So I have to rest on Shabbos from what? The only way that I can rest on Shabbos like God rested, is if you give me a world to create. You have to give me a world to create. The Mishkan was a microcosm of the universe. And Rashi makes a few references to this. The 50 golden hooks that held the, the in the blue loops that held the, the uh, Yuria together looked like the stars up in the sky. Yeah? And every aspect of the world was captured inside of the Mishkan. When we built the Mishkan, we were building a world for ourselves that we had mastery over. And that's why even though they finished building the Mishkan on Hanukkah, Chavhei Kislev, they did not put it up until Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Right? As a argument between Rebbeleazim and Yeshua whether the world was created on Rosh Chodesh Tishrei or Rosh Chodesh Nisan. It means that we were going to create, whatever we were going to create was going to go up the same way the world was created. This was our world. Take this a step further. And uh, the Nesiva Shalom has a whole piece where he speaks out what I'm about to say if you want to see it inside. Yeah? There are 39 malachas. We all know there are 39 malachas. That's not what it says in the Mishnah. It says, Arabayim chosa achas. 40 less 1. That's uh, not the best way to say it, right? So the Tosus Yantif has an interesting approach. The Tosus Yantif says that whenever we want to use a number, we try to bring it from the Torah. So that whenever you want to say a few in a Mishnah, everybody knows this, we say, Arba On Shabbos, you're allowed to move four or five containers of grain to make room for people. It really means more. But that's the way we say a few. Four or five. Why? Because you find four and five, when you steal a cow or you steal a sheep, you have to pay back four times or five times. So it's because you have Dalad Vehei, four or five. Whenever you want to say a few, we borrow four and five. Because we find the number 39 described as 40 minus 1 by Malchus, when it comes to giving lashes, it says 40 less 1. So therefore, that's the way we always say 39. We say 39, 40 minus 1. That's one approach. The Svasemis brings a different approach, and he says the following. I'm moving into esoteric, Kabbalistic area. Those of you who enjoy this, you know, you'll get a kick out of this for the rest of you. You could just do what I did when I sat through Dr. Schroeder's Genesis and the Big Bang for the first time. Mm-hmm. I went to Hank, and uh, in 11th grade, you had an option between physics and earth science. I will not even let you guess which one I took. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and here I'm sitting in this whole physics chair uh, that Dr. Schroeder is giving, and I'm furiously taking notes, and I'm really having difficulty following this. And he said later in a different chair that he worked very hard to dumb this down so even the, you know, the average idiot could follow it, and I appreciated that. And I was sitting next to a Rosh Hashiva who 
was stroking his beard the whole time, nodding along, you know. And I'm furiously taking notes and trying to follow this. I sat for the class a bunch of times, you know, until I got it down. And I turned to him at one point, I said, do you understand this? And he goes, not a word. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, so I'll throw out some Kabbalistic stuff. If it works for you, that's fine. If not, just nod along and stroke your beard and, you know, uh, however it works. Yeah. Um, there are the ten spheres. I mentioned that God created the world with ten expressions. Those are captured by the ten spheres. The ten spheres, of course, are the three upper spheres and the seven lower spheres. The seven lower spheres are the ones, even if you have a nice arts called sitter, you know, you'll see on each week of Spheres Omer, it talks about, you know, Chesed, Gvur, Teferis, Netzachod, Yisod, and Malchus. Uh, we're just coming out of... Sukkis, if you have the Minag, where you do Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, Yosef, and David, you notice Yosef is out of chronological order. That's because he corresponds to Yisod. And that's why it follows those seven Ushpiz and follow the seven spheres uh, that correspond to the seven Kochve Leches, the seven heavenly bodies, you know, that move, that move, the sun, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And Saturn in Hebrew, of course, is called Shabtai. And Shabtai has a ring around it, like a crown, because it's Malchus, yeah. They correspond to the days of the week, yeah. Sunday, Moon Day, Saturn Day, yeah. They, uh, they also correspond to the spheres. They correspond to parts of your body. They, they, they pop up all over the place. And the top three also you know, have their, their own sources here and you can find them. And so whenever you find a 10, you find the Esamakos, you find the Eseris Dibros, you find the 10 tests of Avraham, you find the, the 10 Nisan of the Basement of the East. Whatever they are, they correspond to these 10. These 10 are the, uh, uh, are the spheres that Kodesh Baruch used to create the world. That would be challenging enough, except for the Kabbalistic concept called Abiyah. Abiyah means there are four levels of spiritual existence. There's Atsilas, there's Bria, there's Yitzira, and there's Asiya. Atsilas is the Aleph before the Bays of Bereshus. There's Bereshus, Bara, that starts Bria. Before that comes Atsilas, yeah, and then comes Yitzira, and then comes Asiya. There's four levels. And says the Svas Emes, and there are ten spheres in each one of the levels of Abiyah. There's going to be a quiz on this, so I hope you're taking notes, yeah? The simple thing is like this. If there are four levels of existence and ten spheres in each one, so how many does that equal? Forty. And there's only one of those that you cannot access. That's the first one, yesh ma'ayin. That you can't do. It says the Sfas Emes, the malachas on Shabbos are forty, less one, because that you can't do. Everything else that you do, you access one of these things. So what does that mean? We're just coming out of Sukkot, so we did the Dalit Minim. And you know, you wave it in all the directions. It says the Gemara, to chase away the bad ruchos, the bad talim, is to chase away the bad effects. <clears throat> it's not symbolic that we're chasing it away. We actually are chasing it away. We do a physical action that affects things in the spiritual world. That's a, a powerful concept and one that we really don't grasp. Right? Uh, the Gemara in Shabbos says that when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to bring down the Torah, the Malachim were going to kill him because they didn't want to give it to him. And he was afraid because the Malachim are made out of fire and they were going to kill him and it was really bad. And he says to God, God, help me out here, you know? He says, hold on to my throne and answer them. So he grabs onto the throne. And he says, okay, guys, you want the Torah? He says, yeah, we want the Torah, mortal man. You will never understand the depth and the power of it as we do. He says, you're right. Let's open the book. Honor your father and mother. You guys got parents? Well, no, not in the traditional sense. Ah, you will rest on the Shabbos day. Do you guys work? Uh, no. Um... Don't steal. Can you guys, like, possess anything? All right, take it. <laughs> That's the Gemara. Says the Alta Slavatka, what in the world is going on over here? What is, the, what is happening? What is this whole discussion? 
The Malachim said there is depth and understanding to Torah that human beings will never grasp. <clears throat> and he says to Moshe, hold on to my throne. What is my throne? My throne is what allows God, so to speak, to sit in this world. That's why when a Molek wants to chase God out of the world, it says that Yad Hashem Bekes Ka, his kisei is not complete, his throne is not complete as long as the Molek is here, because he chases God out of the world. The throne is what allows God to be in the world. What Moshe said to the Malachim were, you're right. You will understand it theoretically on a level that we can't, but we can do it in the Olam HaMaisa and you can't. We can do an action in this world that's like a backwards puppet. We pull the string and things happen up in Shamayim. That's the way tefillah works. Tefillah works from the sense that we are able to do things in this world that changes things up in Shemayim. And any time that you've ever said a Perak Tehillim, like I, you know, they, they do at the end of Davening, you say a Perak Tehillim for the Jews, Perak Tehillim for the people who are sick, whatever it is. That means that on some level you believe that you're going to say something down here and you're going to change the Gezeira up in Shemayim. And that's what we do. When we do something down here, though we may not realize it, we are shaking the cosmos. We are changing the spiritual underpinnings of the universe in a way that the Malachim cannot. They are static. As the Rambam says, there are ten levels of Malachim, obviously corresponding again to our ten spheres, and each one is locked into where he is. There is no promotion for angels. You don't move up. You know, if you're an Ofan, you never get to be a Saraf. That's it. Wherever you are, you are. That's why we say in Davin, Kulam Ahuvim. Why? Ki Kulam Burim. They, they all know who they are. So there's no reason to be jealous or be upset about anybody else. You know, uh, he, he didn't take my position. I am where I am, and that's the best that I can do. Right? I, I have to focus on that. But we, well, he said is, we can bring a Kodesh Baruch Hu down into this world and then control things up there. We don't realize it. We really don't. Trust me, if you knew what you could do when you daven, you would daven differently. Yeah? The Shiva uh, of Chavetz Chaim, of Chanuch Leibowitz, Zatzal. He said, uh, we blow one last tekiah on Rosh Hashanah. Why? To confuse the Satan. Because he hears that tekiah and he thinks Mashiach is coming. Ask Hanach. 2,000 years and he's still falling for the same trick. Let him buy a machsa. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, I know they do this anyway. And he said, the Satan's not stupid, we are. If we knew how close we were at that moment to bringing Mashiach, you'd understand why the Satan is afraid because that's the end of him. And then we just say, oh good, let's go home and eat lunch and that's the end of it. But it's that close what we've accomplished. If we knew the power when we blow Tekiya Shaifa, when we shake a lulav, what we're doing down here, and how we can, when we say a tefillah, we say a capital tehillim, how, how we are affecting the underpinnings of the universe. So, what does that mean? That means that when we plow, we are accessing one of those levels of Abiyah, one of those 39 levels that we can access. When we do Libun, when we wash, we are accessing one of those levels. What we do down in this world corresponds to what HaKadosh Baruch Hu did in the creation of the world. We don't realize it. Because we don't stop to think about what it is that we're doing or why we're doing things. Which is, uh, this is the bane of Jewish education. I speak to students all around the world. And I speak to students who have gone to the finest yeshivas and seminaries, and I speak to people who have had one hour on a Sunday morning in a Reform Hebrew school. And it doesn't make a difference. When I ask them what was frustrating about your Jewish education, they always say, it wasn't relevant to my life. Right? I'm sure you've heard this from you know, your children at some point. Why do I have to learn this? 
What do I need this for? Dad, why am I learning Gemara? I don't have an ox, and I'm not planning on buying one, you know? <laughs> I don't run through the street with pictures, you know? If I marry a woman, it'll be with a ring, not with a piece of silk of indeterminate value. And if I divorce her, it'll be in Basin. I won't throw the get from my roof into her which it catches on the fire on the way down, you know? Why do I need to know this? And it's so true. People don't understand why I have to know any of these things. So we do mitzvos and we follow things and we don't know what we're doing. That's the reason I, I, I come back to it again, but that's the reason people don't enjoy davening. You know? Uh, somebody was asking, what do I need to daven? I said, I said that's because you don't know what you're saying. The person says, it's not true. I have an art scroll. I said, ah. So it used to be you didn't know what you were saying in Hebrew, and now you don't know what you're saying in English. <laughs> right? So you say in Hebrew, I have no idea what that means. So I look in the article and it says, you are great, mighty, uh, laudable, um, high, uh, most laudable, um, uh, praiseworthy, uh, most, uh, most praiseworthy, extolled, exalt. It's hard to tell them between extol and exalt. You know what I mean? Extol and exalt. And, you know, like someone took a thesaurus and copied out a list of words because that's exactly what they did, right? Because <laughs> you can find a list of words for every word in the thesaurus except thesaurus. <laughs> there is no other word for that. Anyway, but, uh, you know, it doesn't have any meaning to us. We say things. We don't know what we're saying. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Hear, O Israel. Who sticks an O in the middle of a sentence? It's not even O-H, it's like, O, oh, Israel. You know what I'm saying? It's just, this is the letter O. Here, O, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, anyone has any idea what that means? God is one. What does that mean? As opposed to two, five, ten. That was a great idea. Everyone worships 50 gods. We worshiped one god. We invented wholesale. You understand? Why offer 50 sacrifices? Find one god. And go to the clearinghouse. You know what I mean? Handle for all the gods. That was the great innovation. We don't know what we're saying. We say things we don't know what it means. We do mitzvahs we don't understand. And so we come into Shabbos and we understand that we're doing these malachas and or we're not doing these malachas. We don't understand that we are refraining from creating a world the same way that God created His world. Rashi says, how did B'tzayel make the Mishkan, by being Mitzarev, the Chof Beis Osios, the same way Hashem did. That's not how you build a Mishkan. You cut the wood, and you weave the, the, the coverings, and you know, we know how you make a Mishkan. It, it, it spells everything out for you. But it's telling us that that's not what went into the Mishkan. It means that everything they did had meaning to it. And we don't put meaning into our things. There was a Rebetzin who uh, came to Israel with her husband one summer. He was uh, leading a group uh, in Kolel, in, in and, uh, and she, had, she was taking care of her kids, you know. But they were in a camp, whatever it was, so she had spare time. She was going for classes. And I knew this girl. She had been an NCS wire of mine all the way back. And she loved to learn. You know, there's a, there's a, a minig in the Yichud room that the husband gives the wife a special gift, you know. So he gave her a Mishnayis Mevueris. You know what I mean? She loved learning. That's what this girl enjoyed. And she says to me, I love learning. I'm, I'm taking classes now and I love this. And when I get back home, I'm going to go back to be a Rebetzin. I'm going to do cooking and cleaning and take care of my kids and stuff like that. And, and I miss this. This is what I really want to do. I said, let me ask you a question. What do you think the Kohanim and the Beis Mikdash did? They did housework. They sifted the flour and they kneaded the dough and they baked the breads. You know what I mean? And they set up the little kabbalos on a tray and brought it up to the Mizbeach. They even did sponja, you know. It says, Gemara Mishach, and they used to stop it up, you know, and let it out, you know, and sponge out all the dam. You know, they, they, they did housework. I said, what made it special was that you knew you were in the base of Mikdash. You don't appreciate that your home is the base of Mikdash. That's why to you, the things that you do are mundane. And she says, how do you focus on that when you're looking at a sink full of dishes? And I said, why do you think a sink full of dishes has any less potential for Kedusha you know, than washing the innards of a cow in a bucket? Which is the Kohana would fight over the right to wash the innards of the cow in the bucket. What made that significant? What made that significant was that people knew 
that I'm doing a malacha, I'm doing an avoda in the base of Mikdash. And what we do in our lives, we don't know that it's important. As somebody observed, and I don't know who first said it, a gadol is not someone who does big things. A gadol is someone who whatever he does is big. Reb Chaim Kreisworth, who was the Rav of Antwerp, and uh, about 20 other positions he held, uh, lived in my building. I knew him in the last years of his life. And every child in the building remembers. He would see you, he would talk to you, and you were the most important person in the world. You know, he would talk to a little child, and that little child was the most important person. The times that I had this chus to go see Rebel Yoshev, Rebel Yoshev who had everything on his shoulders, when I walked in there, there was nobody as important as me. He gave me his full attention, and, and that was it. And, and that's the difference. We walk into Shabbos, and instead of knowing why this is significant to us, we focus on what we can't do. So, uh, this is theory. What, is it, what, is, what are the practical implications? There was a girl, um, uh, based out of in Brooklyn, and she told me, when she was in a seminary year, she says, you know, I've never been happy. And I was a good girl, she said. I never did anything wrong. I never hung out here, and I never went here, and I never went this. I was a good girl, and I, but I'm not happy, you know. I said, because all you're telling me is all the stuff you didn't do. What do you do? Did you ever do anything? You just tell me what you didn't do. Did you ever do anything? A friend of mine is Rosh Hashiva in an out-of-town community. And so the average kids keep different standards than he, he, he wanted for his family. So his daughter would come to him and say, Tati, can I go here? Tati, can we go there? The girls are going here. The girls are doing this, you know. And he'd say, uh, we don't do that in our family. We don't do that in our family. And finally she asked me, what do we do in our family? And I realized, I didn't know. I have no idea what we do in our family. So when it comes to Shabbos, it's not enough to focus on the fact that I'm not creating. What am I doing? Shabbos is supposed to be me'ain olam haba. Tzadikim yoshvim ratrosem v'rashayim v'nanam mizivashchina. Sitting and soaking up the light of God's presence. What does that mean? Is my, is my Shabbos something that is meaningful? Forget about that I'm not doing anything wrong. Am I doing anything right? So uh, this is something, like I mentioned, by a Pesach Seder and by everything else. A person has to have the ability to sit down and look at it and say, how do I make this meaningful? When my kids were little... Um, there was this Choshva of Reich who lived downstairs to me. And he says, he, he was English, and he says, you know, my son came to me and he says to me, you know, Tati, I love Shabbos. And I started patting myself on the back. You know, I like, he says, tell me, why do you love Shabbos? He says, because the Olovskis make a Shabbos party and invite in all of the children and give them treats. <laughs> I admit this, there was a time in my life when my children were little, I sacrificed my own nap and uh, I would bring all my kids you can invite any kids you want from the building they bring in dozens of these kids everybody would get a tree with a different bracha and we'd give them this you know and we, I used to be in youth work you know and we'd sing songs and some parasha questions you know, and the kids had a great time so another chash of once asked me how do you make your kids sit at the Shabbos table I said I don't it's a privilege to sit at the Shabbos table you know I used to have students sometimes would come over to me and say you know uh, uh, you know, I, I'm sorry I missed your shear. I said, don't apologize to me. I said, if I'm handing out ice cream, do you come over and apologize? Oh, I'm sorry I wasn't there. No, you missed out. I said, right now, you know, this is covered by your tuition that your parents paid. Next time you want to come and see me, you're going to pay money out of your pocket. You know what I mean? Like, you know, this, this, is, this is worth money. Every, every class you come to, that, that turns into cash. You know what I'm saying? So uh, they, they always increased attendance. So it's interesting. So, um, but... Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a person comes and they say, you know, how do I make people sit at the Shabbos table? Gosh, why would you want to make anyone sit at the Shabbos table? That means your Shabbos table is not user-friendly. Did you look at your Shabbos table and decide, how can I make this interesting? Okay, so there are some people who have a prepared Dvar Torah. We all know how exciting that is. You understand? <laughs> In this week's parasha, we read the story of Avraham and how Avraham was the first person who came along and discovered HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So too, each one of us in our own life begins a journey. 
I did a takeoff on this once. I was speaking at a dinner. I was the, I was the speaker, you know. But I have these honorees who do these speeches, you know. It is with tremendous humility that I stand here this evening to accept this award. This organization is something that is deeply meaningful to me. And, and then they reciprocate. I especially want to thank my Aishas Chayil. Without whose constant... Anyway, I did this one time. It was so humiliating because the... the Kestavana got up. <laughs> That's exactly what he did. He had the speech. He turned the thing. My age got everything. I was sitting there going, oh my God. <laughs> uh, life imitates art. But anyway, um, so did I sit down and think, how, is this interesting? So, okay. So when they're little kids, so you have to maybe ask questions. There is a book in Israel and... Uh, it's in Hebrew. I don't know if there's an English equivalent to it. Called Otiot Sha'aluni. Um, one of my kids used to get this. Uh, they had a teacher used to print up a page from it. And she'd bring it home every week, you know, when she got it. And she would read the questions. There were 22 questions. And each one, start, the answer starts with a letter from the olive base. First one starts with the olive, second one with the base, right? So 22 questions on, on each parsha. All of my kids who are somewhat competitive, were screaming, who, who, who knew the answers and that, you know. Uh, and I would tell my older children, you know, this is for fourth grade. You know, I mean, let's, let's calm down a little bit, you know. So we had to give the older children a five-second rule so the younger children had a chance, you know, before they would scream out the answer, you know. And I just did it. Uh, I still do it, you know. I just did it at my Shabbos table and, you know, my children in their 30s, you know what I mean, in the 20s. And my son, who's 11, you know, was trying to get his word in. You know? you know, also, also wanted to play, you know. I don't know if there's anything comparable to that. But, you know, I started making up my own questions after a while because everyone knew them all by heart, you know. Making up my own things. You know, we have these, these kind of questions. So that was fun. Uh, they reached a point where, you know, when they were teenagers, uh, younger teenagers, and uh, they had a bad attitude. You know, I know it's hard to believe that happens, but it does. You know, so I switched. I would prepare jokes and stories and, and puzzles and uh, riddles. And we would do that at the Shabbos table. You know, you know those kind of riddles where, you, you know, a man walks into a restaurant, orders a, a, a portion of fish, tastes it, and smiles. And now you have to figure out what happened. Uh, this could go on for weeks. This is a good one, you know. So, uh, you know, in some of these you know, you know. A guy pushes his uh, car up to a hotel and, uh, and says, I'm bankrupt. Well, he's playing Monopoly. You know what I'm but you can, you know, you can drag these things out for an amazingly long time. You'd be surprised uh, if you do it right. You know? So he started doing those. And then, I, 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 when the kids got a little older, you know, older teenagers, so I would do the following. I would ask a question. I would just throw out a question. Whatever the Parsha was. I, remember, I, I, don't, I don't remember every week that I did this, but I remember it was, it was Parsha's uh, Yisra. And Rashi says at the beginning that uh, um, his two children, one of them was named Gershom, Kiger Hayisisham. And uh, the Balaturim brings down, he says that, what does that mean? Yisro made a deal that the first son born had to be dedicated to a Vodazar. But Yisro had already rejected a Vodazar, so what was the purpose of this? And the answer, says the Balturim, is he wanted at least one of his children to understand what it means to be a Balchuva. He wanted him to find it on his own. And I said to my kids, do you think that's a good idea or not? Meaning, should you move into a religious neighborhood and try to shelter your children from outside influences? Or should you move into a non-religious uh, neighborhood and let them get exposed to all kinds of different things so that they learn how to respond to situations? And... Uh, if you know one thing about kids, they all have a lot of opinions, you know, and they all started arguing and they gave me their opinion, etc. It's amazing how many times I've told over this story and somebody would ask me, what did you tell them in the end? I said, nothing. That's the point. Kids are used to having adults ask them questions, make it clear that we could care less what they think, and when they're finished arguing, tell them what the correct answer is. That's what we call education. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know this. A kid goes to school, and the, the, the teacher asks the question, and the kids try to look for a clue to the answer. Because what's education? Education is guessing what the teacher wrote in their notes. 
had a girl in a seminary once. She comes over to me and she says, she opens up a chumash. She says, why does it say these words? So I had the Mikras Gedolas. None of them are far from talking about it. But I agreed with her. The words have to mean something. I looked around. Finally, I found out it was a Gemara in Zvachim. It was by the Akedah that we learned out of the Mishchita, a whole thing like this. And she said, I knew it. So the, the Chumash teacher comes in, says, okay, read these psukim. You know, let's rip it apart. Ask any questions. And I asked this question, and she says, no, 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 the Torah always talks that way. Why? Because she didn't have an answer. So it wasn't the Mikvah's Gedolos that she obviously prepared. So that's it. So it's not a legitimate question. You know? I, I gave a parish this year when I used to teach in seminary. And it was one year I would set up all my questions and a girl gave an answer. It was a lot better than mine. And I was like, I like your answer better. I said, I'll say with my answer just because I got to felt the hour. I said, but, but I said, girls, write down what she said because it's better than what I said. You know, it's a, it's a great idea. I don't have to tell anybody something. Give people an opportunity just to talk and view and, and air their opinions. Well, it would be a great thing, you know, at a Shabbos table, you know, if everybody could offer their opinion, and at the end, and there's nobody there to tell them, no, that's wrong, you can't say that, etc., etc., you know. You can offer an opposing opinion, you know. Sometimes it will get very heated, like when my daughters were in Shiduchim, you know, and uh, one of my daughters was talking about red lines, you know. <laughs> it was just like, and I started arguing with her, and everybody started yelling and screaming. It was like, really, it was kind of scary, you know. And these people came to visit, you know, they oh, every Alaska, and they come in, and everyone's screaming and yelling, and they're like, maybe we'll come back later. <laughs> I said, no, it's just a typical Shabbos table, you know what I mean? If people are engaged, what could be better than that? So there was one time I had some seminar girls over for a meal. And I didn't even realize it, but the, the meal went on for about three, three and a half hours, you know, which is not that unusual, you know. And uh, they were coming down the stairs, and, you know, they forgot the rule. Everyone knows the rule. You know, you wait till you get out of earshot before you start offering your opinions on how things went. And they said, uh, they, said they met some girls from the seminaries They were coming down the steps, and they said, uh, you know, you just finished your meal now? It was like three and a half hours ago. And she's like, yeah, it was great. I was like, you know what I'm If people get away afterwards and say, well, that was great. So the way we're going to access Shabbos, this unbelievable Kedusha, is not by trying to move up into the highest spheres. We have to figure out how to make Shabbos an oneg. Like the Gemara says, if you find a nice fruit, save it for Shabbos. And if you find a nicer one, then eat that one and save the nicer one for Shabbos. Whatever you have, you have to use to be Mechabed Shabbos, to make Shabbos greater. This Shabbos, as I mentioned, all around the world, this project uh, Shabbos, and it gives everybody an opportunity just to stop and appreciate what we have. It comes every single week. And I'll just end with this thought. And uh, the Torah says, you have to count seven years seven times. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven... 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, etc. It does not say you count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 7, 7 times. You have to keep counting it. Why? Because it's a spiral. You keep coming back to the same seven-year cycle, but you're always on a higher level. And says with Desla, the same thing is true with Shabbos. It can't be the same Shabbos every week. We have a Shabbos, and we use that as the starting off point to move up another level, and we have another Shabbos. And another level, and another Shabbos. Kodesh Baruch Hu says, I have a precious gift. It's called Shabbos. And I'm going to give it to the Jewish people. And it's a gift that we have that unfortunately we don't appreciate and we don't take advantage of. And Amir Hashem, this coming Shabbos, let's use this as an opportunity to inspire ourselves and to inspire our families for every Shabbos of the year. Thank you very much.